Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world. Broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world. BlakeRadio.com. Music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul. Blake Radio. Different classes of healing. 
and people are literally sorted into these classes, and they receive care according to these classes, and their outcomes are actually, in large part, determined by the class of healing that they receive. And it's thoroughly within your ability to switch from class to class. So we're going to talk about the different uh, classes of healing and what the better class of healing might be. And uh, only you, of course, know which class you're already in, so you can, of course, navigate your way upwards. Now, uh, I have to also mention I went to Harvard. And Harvard, uh, wasn't any explicit discussion of it, but it was very clear that uh, there were different classes of students. And this is very troubling to me. Because, of course, again, I still had this notion in my head that everybody was equal, that, that uh, you know, everyone had basically equal uh, opportunities and choices and all these things. But not that it was right or wrong, but that was my, my, my notion that I had. And so as I entered Harvard, um, you know, you get in when you're a freshman student, you don't realize all these superstructure that's being imposed on you. You just kind of hit the ground running and demands are made of you and you say, okay, fine, i got to get registered, okay, i got to do this in the dorm, i got to do that for the dining hall, for this for classes, you know, do this, do that, do that. So you're in this very uh, responsive mode where uh, you see things coming at you and you just kind of handle it, handle it, handle it, handle it, okay. And so when I entered Harvard, uh, coming from a family where both uh, parents worked, uh, it was necessary for me to uh, propose, presented with the option to borrow heavily and work long hours uh, in order to get through Harvard. And I said, look at that, because you know it makes no sense to work long hours because then I can't study. And it makes no sense to borrow heavily because then I have to pay back with interest. Anyway, that's one class of students, one that borrow heavily and work long hours. Then there was the uh, next level student that borrowed heavily and worked not so many hours. Now, the student, by the way, borrowed heavily and worked long hours, worked an extremely menial job, which is that awful. So the next level was borrowed heavily and uh, worked light, not so many hours, and that's because the person was much, got much paid a much higher rate. But this is going to work into, into, into healthcare, because healthcare has these strata too. And it's easier to see when you look at how it plays out in a college campus rather than uh, in healthcare. Healthcare can be a little, a little abstract. So what you have then is you have uh, the lowest class of students, which is the one that has menial jobs like uh, feeding peanut butter to roaches, for example, and works very long hours, like uh, 10 hours or more per week and has no hope, really, of putting enough time into their studies to have any uh, chance of academic accomplishment or being distinguished. Next is ones that are heavily but, but work shorter hours because they get the plum jobs. They get jobs that pay more dollars per hour. But these jobs, curiously, are jobs where the students are servants to other students. So these students work cleaning toilets. These work uh, serving alcoholic drinks to uh, alumni and, and so on. So, and these 
students, their parents are maybe professionals. Next, but not very successful ones, or not successful enough. Next uh, are the level where they borrow lightly and, and work. And these people, uh, their family is much more um, successful, parents have, have more money. And um, someone in the chat room said they think that I bartended. Yes, I not only bartended, but I managed a bartending agency at Harvard. So I managed to skip up several levels on the ladder and ultimately reached the highest level, which was no work and no borrowing. But that's another story. So uh, next were people who borrowed some, some money and didn't work at all. And these people were uh, wealthier, but not unlimited money. So their parents uh, said, hey, you have to be a little responsible here, but just, you know, use the money a little bit. You don't have to work. You can just study. And then there were ones who worked only, and they would occasionally pick up a little bit of work for coffee change. These were the people who were on the, um, their parents were, were uh, financially successful, and their parents also held administrative role in the alumni, um, Harvard alumni structure. And then finally, the ultimate, no work and no borrowing. These are students who did not have to work while at Harvard and did not have to borrow any money while at Harvard. And these people, um, as you can imagine, had a totally different outlook. Their whole day was zero. They spent no time looking for work. They spent no time working. Now, yet they spent no time throwing out any paperwork. Um, their parents' financial details were totally private. Nothing was ever revealed, and they had everything was freely throughout the campus. No work and no borrowing. Now, it turns out that the amount of borrowing needed determined your monthly loan repayments when you graduated, and basically guaranteed you would return to the economic class you came in at the department. That's the borrowing piece. And the working piece meant that depending on how many hours you work, you would get lower grades and therefore your transcript would reflect your economic class that you came in at more so than it would reflect, say, your academic abilities. Because if you're working 10 or 20 hours a week, you really don't have a lot of time uh, for those things. It's very, very, very interesting. And so it turned out then was the no work and no borrowing individual had maximum amount of privacy, maximum amount of uh, personal discretionary time, and obviously when they graduated, having no burdens, maximum economic opportunity, totally apart from any uh, help their parents may or may not give them. How does this work for healing? Well, there are classes of patients, and these are the classes of patients. Um, one class of healing is insurance only. These people are at the bottom, well, excuse me, is a, is a class below them, excuse me. Uh, the lowest class of healthcare is people who are paid to receive healthcare. So people who receive healthcare as their, um, as a sense of a source of revenue are at the, at the bottom of the phone call. And this is unfortunate. These are people who participate in uh, clinical trials who are given uh, dangerous, unproven drugs, and who often suffer uh, permanent damage and even death, and their deaths are not uh, often, are often not documented and certainly not uh, 
chronic method most definitely I'd say sarcomas. So the lowest strength, the lowest and most dangerous category of young to be in is one where you are being paid in order to receive health care. Don't forget that. So if someone offers you $50, $100, $500, whatever, if only you'll take this drug and report back to them how it worked out, that's a serious bad deal. We had a, uh, I don't think it happened. I was in medical school. We had people who were, you know, donating their bone marrow, donating this, donating that. And um, actually a couple of students did participate in front of the child. It didn't seem to be an especially uh, pleasant experience. So what's the next class of young? The first class of young, I think I mentioned it because it does exist, but it's very, very dangerous. So that's being a paid uh, patient. The next class of healing is almost uh, as bad. This is um, insurance only, and we'll call it Medicaid for, for the moment. So insurance only slash poor, poor, uh, poor person's program. This is the worst. This is no privacy and no choice. Analogous in the college example to we uh, have the financial burden of, of your future being compromised, and then you have a college transcript that's worthless because, of course, you don't have any good grades on it because you couldn't study. And so this person is getting care of, of such a uh, quality that one can surely be used if you better off. Uh, staying home. Certainly in medical school, I, I was just uh, shocked as we did prenatal care for these um, poor women on the Medicaid program. And the doctors, when they left the, when they would examine the women, they would be very rough. And uh, then when they're trying to explain to us you know, how to examine a woman, we're talking about a pelvic exam here. And they would say, well, you know, this lady's poor and, and she's pregnant. She's probably a prostitute. Her kid's going to be a criminal. And this whole big uh, story in his mind around who this child, this uh, mother was. So uh, second class was women, know, the people, who had public insurance and they had a public insurance because they were perceived to be uh, poor. But again, these people are insurance only, so no, no out-of-pocket uh, component here. And what that meant was the person basically uh, could only get what their insurance wanted. And the communication was basically with their insurance company almost never with them. This is very dangerous when you think about medical care, and what you really need to want to communicate is, you know, with the patient, like, hey, what's going on? Uh, you know, what seems to be going on is trying to make some kind of diagnosis of what's happening. And the next thing you want to figure out is other available therapies, which are therapy would be most convenient for this patient, what would he be most likely to be able to implement? And so these conversations don't happen, and so we frequently this mismatch between I should say misdiagnosis, number one. And number two, even if you get the right diagnosis, you have the therapy that um, 
is not only may not be a good match for that patient, number one, number two, uh, it can't be implemented. It's, it's just ridiculous. So that's the Medicaid. The next most dangerous class of care would be Medicare. Now, I just, this is just splitting hairs, uh, but the difference between Medicare and Medicaid is in Medicare, there is a deductible. There is a 20% deductible. So there is a fun component of uh, patient payment. And so there is a little bit of pressure to talk to the patient. In other words, 80 20. Now, the amazing thing about Medicare, as I've mentioned many, many times, is the Inspector General has been very clear that he has examined the situation and finds that 180,000 Medicare patients uh, die every year because they receive care through Medicare. In other words, had they stayed home, they'd be a lot. Had they just not engaged the system, they would be a lot. It was not their disease that killed them, it was their medical care. And so this is an amazing thing. And so we have to put Medicare here at, at the bottom in a separate uh, class from Medicaid. Now, if you look at the numbers of deaths and murders and whatever, you're going to find that Medicare comes out ahead in terms of documented uh, murdering of patients by their medical care. The question then is, how can I put Medicaid even below Medicare? Now, I can only do this really through direct observation. If I, if I had not actually um, gone through medical school, um, gone through residency, and seen what happens to individuals uh, in the Medicaid system, then I, I would have really no clue. And then offer research into prenatal care into the increased um, loss of life in that first trimester of pregnancy. That's a pretty big chunk, pretty big chunk of uh, carnage there. And again, this is this is this is covered up in the way that statistics are kept. So if the baby's not going alive, he's never uh, documented as his life having been snuffed out. If you snuff out his life early in pregnancy as a result of prenatal care, we're not even talking about abortion. We're just talking about um, doctors intervening in the pregnancy in according to standard care, doing the blood work, doing the health exam, giving the antibiotics, um, doing invasive procedures on pregnant women, administering vaccines to pregnant women, all these things are ways that the fetus is simply uh, terminated. And not with the lady's knowledge, consent, or even at her uh, desire. So uh, Medicaid, uh, I would as being a more dangerous class of care. So we have the people who get paid to receive care that don't even, don't even do that. Next is insurance only Medicaid, and next is insurance only Medicare. And so the next class of care is insurance only private. This is really shocking <laughs> because what I found in my medical class, medical practice, 
when the patients who chose to allow their insurance coverage to dictate their decision making totally and completely um, really had the absolute worst outcome uh, for many reasons. First of all, a lot of times things that were beneficial to them they didn't do that's not that their insurance would pay for. And um, things that were not beneficial for them they would do because of course well the insurance would pay for. So um, people who make their decisions only on based on insurance only, what will my insurance pay for? Um, very, very uh, you know, very poor outcomes. And if you have this mindset that you will accept anything that your insurance pays for. Then when you enter a hospital and the hospital swipes your insurance card and they say, whoa, this person's insurance will pay for the following 30 tests. Of course, each test is going to take, what, a piece of blood from you, uh, a piece of tissue from you, a piece of flesh, or it's going to irradiate you with radioactive x-rays, right? And so if you have this done on 20 occasions, to get information that's a really not earthly use to anyone, then you've got straight out damage. And so what happens then is the person has the attitude or value that they're going to accept any medical care their insurance pays for and not accept any medical care their insurance is not paid for, even private insurance. Then when they encounter a hospital, and their uh, insurance card gets swiped, and then the uh, administrative crew comes by and puts stickies in the chart letting the doctor know you can order the file of 10 tests that this person's insurance will pay for it, and the doctor proposes that, well, I'd like to order these 10 tests. Instead of saying or focusing on, well, how is this going to help me feel better, live longer, and, you know, be more Instead uh, so of focusing on that, and others looking at it for the patient, the patient says, Well, will my insurance pay for it? So says, yeah. The patient says, Oh, okay, proceed. So now you have a whole cascade of complications. Why do you have a cascade of complications? Because you can't possibly have a cascade of benefits under the test for being valued, being what's necessary. So insurance only uh, is the next uh, highest, the next most beneficial standard of care. And why do I say this is any less deadly than Medicare or Medicaid? Just because because these people are healthy enough to work, chances are they might actually get up out of the bed and leave the hospital before they, get, before they die or get killed. Uh, but we're still in, the, in the, you know really a red a red area danger zone here. So, if you make your healthcare decision, or you labor, or you accept medical care in a class of, I'm only going to do what my insurance pays for, you're still in a pretty dangerous area, whether that insurance carrier is Medicaid, Medicare, or private. And um, there are degrees of red, but you're still in a danger area. And that's the people who make their decisions based on, I would tell you, I'm mentioning automated based on that, it's really a bad decision. I was in medical school, and I first got to medical school, uh, they offered immunization to all the students. And I said, well, you know what, 
uh, I'm not getting any invitations. I'm busy. I got things to do. Uh, I just not showing up for training invitations. So for this, I didn't show up. And then I was uh, getting ready to, so I got out of medical school, and then I was in residency. And residency, I said, you know, you can get the hepatitis B vaccine, it's a free vaccine, and it's all you get is three shots and you're done. And if you get them now, they're free. But if you wait until you graduate, you have to pay for your own vaccine. I go, how much are Well, it's a vaccine. It was, uh, I think, um, $100 a shot. And, oh my God, it's so much money. Well, I'll get them now. <laughs> so, not good. Um, I ended up getting, you know, some autoimmune complications from the uh, hepatitis B shot, which uh, I cleared up myself. But uh, definitely not good. Not any basis for making any decision at all. Um, the next basis is insurance and some cash. These are people who have the usual 20% deductible, maybe several hundred dollar copay type policy, or at least 20% uh, of it comes out of their pocket, and at least they have a deductible. What does this mean? This means that at least they have some skin in the game at the time of consumption. Of course, the whole thing, the payment of the insurance every month by them is their money, or was their money until they turned it over to the insurance company, and then of course it became the insurance company's money. And unfortunately, in the eyes of the patient, it becomes the insurance company's money once they pay the insurance premium. And that mental um, transition is a very dangerous one too because you don't feel invested in it. You don't, you don't say, hey, wait a minute, this is umpteen amount of dollars and, and this is my money and I don't want to spend it this way. And you don't have that strong feeling because you really can't take that money and spend it on a vacation, a piece of furniture, um, better food or whatever. So, but it does at least keep people from consuming a certain portion of dangerous care. So insurance only, I'm sorry, insurance and some cash. And some cash. Next one is insurance and lots of cash. And these are people who have catastrophic policies only, and maybe they'll pay the first five thousand. And unfortunately, most people who get these uh, policies like this actually really do have the five thousand dollars. And in other words, uh, if they feel so motivated, they could spend the five thousand. I would suggest that people actually get a catastrophic policy or a high deductible policy with really literally no intention of paying the deductible. In other words, of still saying to themselves, okay, if I get an expense above whatever the dollar amount is, I'm just going to refuse care. And this makes it easier to say no to something uh, that's separate. And it doesn't, the other thing it does is when you really have a true full uh, 100% dollar bill at your disposal, you can say, how do I want to spend this money? Is this really what I want to do with this money, or would I rather buy a car? So I really want to do this with the money, or I'd rather give a gift to the kid, or whatever. So if you have that money where it can go 100% into your pocket instead of into medical care, then that makes decision-making uh, much more rational. In other words, it gets 100% of your brain engaged where the question you're really asking is, is this really the best use for my next $2,000, $5,000, $10,000, $50,000?
rather than saying, oh, it's the uh, insurance company's money, I've already paid the money, and my part of this is only 20%. And so instead of looking at the 20% copay as your true level of investment, look at the full dollar amount as your true level of investment. What I found in my medical practice was these people were much more engaged in the decision-making process and how things were done. And they are much more interested in considering their options and rejecting options that did not provide them with personal benefit to their health care. And when you're working with somebody like that, it's really, you can be much more effective because the person's focus is on their personal benefit from any particular health or healing intervention. And so they're narrowly focused on that then it's easy for a practitioner to share that focus. And when both the practitioner and the patient have this narrow focus of healing the patient, then you can get phenomenal outcomes, great benefit, and very little risk, very little harm. But on the other hand, the focus switches and you've got the um, patient focused on getting his money worth and spending up all those premium dollars he hasn't used up so far. You've got the doctor focused on the standard of care and keeping his license. Everyone's focus is scattered, and no one is even sharing the same focus. And really bizarre, dangerous, deadly things can happen. And so the patient being in the game dollar for dollar at the time of the transaction adds a tremendous amount of safety, a tremendous amount of safety to, to what's going on. And so what this means then is you have a much safer interaction because the, the, the patient is focused on their health. They're not focused on um, getting more money out of the insurance company. Which, by the way, is the same thing. The insurance can be focused on the insurance, but they want to run the bill up too. They want to keep the patient stressed and, uh, and on the hook. Because a lot of times you have a situation where the bill will come to, let's say, $100, the patient pays, pays the doctor $20, and the doctor never, really, never receives the $80 from the insurance company. And so literally, the patient pays for the whole visit. So, a lot of these things uh, actually happen, but if the, if the patient were willing or understood all this, uh, you know, complex uh, bait and switch and, and financing stuff, then he would understand that he's tremendously better off with cash in his pocket. Why? Because the ultimate utility of what he's purchasing is very low. Um, somewhere around 1-5% of healthcare that's received is useful. And so with that type of investment, um, it, it never makes sense to purchase. And if people are paying cash out of pocket, their chances of purchasing are simply less. So it's just simply on a minimum purchase type uh, basis that patients who are in that class of medical care come out better. 
So the basic classes are insurance only, a mixture of insurance and cash, and cash only. And that's basically the type of interactions that are uh, that take place. And patients at any and all times can choose, literally choose, which class they're in. Because now for Obamacare, everyone's got mandatory insurance. So you can choose to do insurance only, which means only make decisions that your insurance coverage agrees with, or you can choose to uh, go insurance and cash, which is to uh, pay part cash and part insurance. But because of Obamacare and because of various regulations, you have zero privacy. And it turns out that when you have zero privacy, the patient and the doctor have zero control because they are 100% under supervision. So now, even if the doctor expects to get paid, then he's under obligation to totally divulge the content of the medical encounter, which means then that he's not free during the medical encounter to obey the request of the patient. Instead, he has to obey the standards of care. He has to obey a protocol that was written and put in place before the patient ever even showed up. And so that process greatly limits the amount of um, choices the patient has. And the choices that would be better best for the patient's health might not be on that list. In fact, most likely they wouldn't be. Why? Because the list is made up can only be made up by any of three entities, which would be the hospital for its own profit, the insurance company for its own profit, or your company for their own profit. So no one else has the authority to write these protocols. And so because of this, it creates a situation where people who enter into a medical encounter with any component of insurance put the doctor in a position of being supervised, of providing copies to insurances, and potentially being reprimanded, um, losing his uh, license or even his uh, livelihood, and his uh, economic uh, activities or doing the work simply by following the wishes of the patient. So this is a tough position to put a doctor in, and nowadays it's even more intense because of the existence of electronic health records and because they're working with uh, doctors to uh, be able to create these records very quickly uh, before the patient even um, leaves the office or even before the, certainly before the end of the workday. And what this means then is that the copy of the patient's record has really been transmitted to uh, everybody who wants to know before the patient even gets home. So that's an issue. The privacy is huge because without privacy, there's a second piece, which is choice. You can't have choice. So if the doctor knows that his, what he writes on this record is going to be an, uh, become a matter of public record, then he's going to behave a lot differently. A lot differently. 
And the thing then is that you can't, you need to get into a class of healthcare that does not involve insurance because that gives you privacy. And then you can have, once you have privacy, then the cash means something. Then, okay, now you can buy what you want. And so with privacy and choice, uh, as a patient, you can get the focus back where it belongs, which is on you, on your condition, on your healing. And the doctor's worst fear is not getting sued, but the worst fear is selling to get paid. Well, if you can create a situation where the doctor understands that if he does what you want, he gets paid, and that if you die, he doesn't get paid, then you have the greatest balance, which is you have input where you have control and you have a situation where the doctor's focus on you getting better. Whereas if your insurance is saying the doctor's answer basically is just playing more of that hands number one and number two, when you're dead, he's still filing paperwork and the money's still flowing in. And so it's a very, um, very difficult situation when you say, hey, fill uh, my insurance. That's, nothing could be uh, more deadly to your health than to say something like that. So the best class of healing is paying cash only. A lot of people say, oh, no, I can't afford to pay cash. I, you know, I, uh, well, the, you know, I can barely pay my rent of $200, whatever. And the answer to that is free. Stay home. That's even the best option. And that's another issue, which is that the people who are least likely to be murdered by medicine are people who don't have insurance. And this had to be ended. And that's what Obamacare did. Because I think everyone has friends who uh, are uninsured and quite healthy. Thank you. And many people who are uninsured are uninsured by choice. And so if you have a conspicuous group of people who are uninsured but healthy, then it makes it difficult to maintain the illusion for the um, rest of the people while they are being fleeced. Uh, difficult to maintain the illusion that they are actually being helped and that what they are receiving is in any way beneficial to them personally. And then there's, there's always been the um, fantasy that these wealthy people, whoever they are, and it's not clear who they are, are somehow using doctors to heal themselves, when of course um, that's generally not the case. Um, but in any case, it doesn't matter what anyone else is doing or what rich people are doing or what poor people are doing. What matters is what any one person does. It's you. What matters is you having control over uh, your choices. And so as a marketing tactic, um, you know, the marketers say, hey, you know, this is what the rich people are doing, you should be doing it too. I'm like, well, you know, show me some rich people and uh, we'll take it from there. And I think that that you should do too. You should, you know, demand to, to see a, a little bit of truth here. And, and the truth of the matter is that um, people who have choices quickly turn away from uh, the standard of care because they find that it's, it's not working, it's not producing results because, of course, 
It's only designed to produce results for um, anyone and everyone except, except the patient. So, how do you get from one class to another? The first, the way to get to cash only is quick. Simply drop your insurance. Can't get there any faster than that. Uh, drop your insurance and you're on cash only. And what do you got when you got cash? You got privacy. And what's the other thing you got? You got choices. And if you start from that position, then you can go in many directions, which is nice. You can go in the standard direction where maybe you're going to go see a doctor and pay for an office visit, see how far that gets you, try that out, see how it works for you. Um, or maybe you can say, hey, you know, that's an alternative. And if you've got a big budget, maybe you'll go see an alternative practitioner on a more modest budget. Maybe what you'll do is you'll go do some research, read up on this alternative thing or that alternative thing, and uh, see what works for you. And if you do the, I'm going to read on my own, you may find you spend all of uh, $10 and you solve a problem that would easily cost you $500. And so if you stay in that cash space with maximum control and maximum privacy, the other thing you have is you only have access to uh, modalities, basically food and spices, that are sort of pretty safe and without risk of death. So that's a huge advantage. So most people can get to the cash only quicker than they think. And whether you use cash only has nothing to do with your income level or with the, if the government thinks you're at the poverty line or they think you're not at the poverty line. What it has to do with is your personal behavior. You can simply make up your mind that whenever you have a health issue, that you're going to handle it with your cash, your time, your effort, your ingenuity. And that is what puts you in a particular class. Now, in the chat room here, someone mentioned that they are in a class of one, me. Uh, and that's true. And that's what you need to understand is that this is not a group thing. It's you being in a class of one. And you can make a decision that you're going to um, do cash only. You can decide you're going to use your insurance and some cash. You can decide you're going to use your insurance only. And so the class of medical care that you are in actually has the most to do with your mental outlook and with your mind and with where you see yourself and your health care and your goals. And so what you have to do is the same way they say, well, well a doctor shouldn't just be a money grubber, a doctor shouldn't just um, think only of money. But guess what? It's equally important for the patient to not be a money grubber, the patient to not enter the medical encounter with the intent of getting um, getting the most money out of the health insurance company. Because it might be that the only way to get the most money out of the health insurance company involves paying with your life. So this is not a, it's not a trivial matter uh, at all. Okay, so we've got questions. My God, we've got tons and tons of questions. So now it's time for questions. If you have questions, you're listening. Um, you can just click one on the telephone line and then uh, 
<laughs> and then we will uh, answer your call. And if you're in the chat room, you can just type up your, your question and then we'll answer it. All right. Okay, here we are. Okay, so there's a question uh, from I think another radio show today, so let's get the question. Okay. Question from a show I did earlier. What are the symptoms of cancer? Blah blah blah. Well, there is no diagnosis because we don't go to the doctor, right? Okay, so this person. Right. So that's another show. Uh, I'll just give an answer that maybe present listeners might understand, which is there is no need of any diagnosis. Um, the diagnosis is the disease. In other words, the disease is the hope. So the answer then is don't worry about it. If you feel fine, you are fine. All right. Okay. What about internet offers to participate in medical trials and medical questionnaires? What do you think about that? Uh, definitely do not participate in medical trials. Uh, people who run them recommend you don't participate in them. They're very dangerous. These are drugs that are not perfectly safe or effective, and so it's difficult to justify even getting involved at that level. And medical questionnaires, um, yeah. We really can't tell you enough to participate in medical questionnaire. Because the thing is, this is information that is sold. And um, it's not clear how much of your identity is actually sold in the questionnaire. And so um, this is almost like tailor-made for identity theft, you know. You fill out the questionnaire. Well, first you fill out your name, address, stuff, 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 stuff. And then they say, oh, okay, here's the medical questionnaire. You don't even think that your personal data you just filled out is really going to be linked to this medical questionnaire. It might be. So, not good. Who asked, are Medicare and Medicaid corporations? Answer, I don't know. Um, another person asks, when information given to patients is erroneous, how can a person give consent? The answer is the person's consent can only be challenged in court after the fact. So in other words, if, you, if the doctor is given erroneous information, let's say in medical school, which happens frequently, right? They even admit that half of everything they teach doctors in medical school is false. It doesn't get any better. It's been going on now for decades. So they've got an issue with their accuracy issue, accuracy here. Okay, so the doctor got false information in medical school. He's taking this false information, he's giving it to the patient, and the patient's making a decision, a consent on it, right? Well, that consent is valid unless and until challenged in court. And even when challenged in court, the challenging party has to show that the person knowingly gave false information. Very interesting. Okay, so I'm going to doctor's office. And 
mind, they put me in a contraction that moved around your head. The practitioners, or the doctor's spouse later said they put me in it because they needed to make the payment, not because it would show us anything more. In other words, again, you got put into that contraction because your insurance paid for it. If you had not had insurance at the time, and if they said, hey, get this contraction test, you would have said, well, well how, what information are you going to get from it? And can they treat you without that information? So you would have had that conversation. But because, X-ray, because uh, insurance was involved, you went ahead, exposed yourself to the radiation, inconvenienced yourself, and uh, the transaction ensued. <laughs> the person I test X-ray for selective service system on I 18 X4, I could feel a kind of heat from the X-ray. My dad told me I was imagining things. Okay. Again, you have no idea what's really going on in those machines, especially in radiology. Um, I'll give you an example. When I was in medical school, this was way in dark ages, late 70s, early 80s, um, they would subject people in x-ray to radiation and to experimental um, testing that the uh, patients were not aware of. So this is, this is something that, that, that goes on and just, you just have no way of knowing. Um, the doctors don't even know what rays are really coming out of those machines. <laughs> okay, it's easy to talk tough and smart when I'm in the chat room with people who see things the way I do. Much more difficult to actually take action out there in the field. And I would say the answer is yes. And so you have to plan your actions out there in the so-called real world when you're surrounded by people with different beliefs. And um, what I recommend doing is simply agreeing that you're going to have different beliefs. And so immediately allow them to have their, you know what, I might not agree with you, but I think that what you're doing, I'm sure, is the best thing for you right now. And so I'm sure also that what I'm doing is the best thing for me right now. And that's cool. You can do the thing that's best for you, and I can do the thing that's best, that's best for me, and we can still be friends. And so that's the posture to take. And um, if it involves family, you can even go the next step. You know, you can help drive them to the emergency room when they want to go. Um, so all kinds of things that you can, uh, you know, do to help smooth over the cultural uh, risk there. Okay, my last four apathies. I had no medical care. I just did large doses of vitamin C and oil pulling. No x-rays. Go figure. Infections went away. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Uh, I was surprised when my spouse started another health savings account after we scrambled for new glasses to use it up the last time. 
The new program supposedly lets you keep the money if you don't spend it. Um, the problem with that, the health savings account um, puts the money in a tax-free status. And the question is, if you don't use it, you get it back and it becomes taxable again. So it's not clear that that's a benefit. But again, you have to recognize when people are taking your power away. So they're, they're saying, hey, it's your money. Put it over here into a health savings account. It's still your money, but we're going to decide how you can spend it. So you need to understand what's going on with the health savings account. They not, may not be taking your money, they're just taking your power. And so the best thing to do is to put as little as possible in a health savings account. In other words, if you know what their rules are, and if you plan to spend any money in that manner anyway, then you would put that in a health savings account. But you're not going to put money in a health savings account and then make up your own rules like uh, sending it to vitamins or something. Okay, so will paying cash only keep me out of the doctor's record book? The answer is it could. It depends on the doctor. So some doctors are um, staying totally outside of the insurance system, in which case uh, they're not even going for electronic records. Not all doctors have electronic records at this time. And so there are doctors who have decided that they're not even going to try to take insurance of any kind. And so that means they don't have to have electronic health records. And that is then it takes the next step, which is that they don't necessarily have to have records at all. So you cannot stay out of the record book if you're paying cash to a doctor with electronic records because he has um, 100% um, vulnerability. He's got to stay electronic for all of his, all of his uh, patients. And that's another thing. What they found is that doctors take insurance, whatever the largest insurer is, let's say Blue Cross Blue Shield, they tend to treat all of their patients as if they're members of that particular insurance plan. And so if you take it, if you're seeing a doctor who practices insurance, then even you, if you pay in cash, you may still not get um, the individualized attention that you're looking for. <laughs> okay, living in the United States, if someone asks me a question about health, how do I legally answer it without being charged with practicing medicine without a license? You can just say something like, you know, I, I, I can't tell you what maybe you should do, but I, this is what I would do, and you might find it useful or interesting. That would be the way to, to phrase it. Um, another way to do it would be just to issue a disclaimer, hey, this is about medical care or medical information. Check with it with your medical doctor before you even think about doing it, and if anything goes wrong as you implement it, um, I'm not responsible on taking responsibility. Um, that is not a very friendly conversation. I think that doing the first one will more than cover you, which is, hey, you know, uh, I can't tell you what to do, but if it was me, this is what I would do. It might not work for you, I, I don't know. So that would be the introduction.
What is the best form of non-animal protein to consume? Obtaining clean meat is nearly impossible. Nearly impossible. Uh huh. I see. What is place in the United States called Williamsburg? Williamsburg. And I take my kids every day. Every take their take them there every year for a week. And so we're going to the exhibits where slaves lived and how they lived and all kinds of stuff. And so what slaves would do is they had this uh, room they were in. Actually, it was a little bit house there. We would call it a casita nowadays. So the place was a little casita. And the casitas are about 10 feet by 6 feet. And the slave would have a bed in there and he would have a chicken. And the chicken would run around and, and, uh, and eat bugs and whatever. And the chicken got to be a certain size. Why he'd just put you the chicken and eat it. So what I'm saying here is uh, what is the world's way? If a slave in 1840... Uh, living in a you know six by ten room can find a way to get clean meat. Uh, you know you probably can too. That's that's one piece. Okay, but the other piece is what's the best form of non-animal protein to consume? Um, best non-animal protein, I think, is beans, chia seed, and flax seed. That's a lot of things. Why is it not doing about hemp seed? <clears throat> I don't think so. I don't think so. So uh, that's the best, and that's still over time, or right over time, over 20 years, you may still find that you need some meat protein in there somewhere. So what I would do is absolutely keep the meat to, to a, a minimum. Uh, let's say you're a vegetarian. I would say maybe eat meat uh, once every five years or something, and that should that should do it for you. Okay, we have about two more minutes. Okay. All right, I think that we are pretty much done here. Well, another episode comes to an end, and I hope you've figured out how to elevate your healing to another class of care. And of course, do it. Me at vitalitycastle.com. That's vitalitycapsules.com, and we will see you again next week, and Happy New Year.